The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you've got your copies of God's Word, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, For the sake of timing and for the sake of accuracy, as I deal with this last sermon in a theology of singleness, how can Christian men be found in the state of singleness, and how should they view it? And then same thing for Christian women, biblical masculinity and biblical femininity expressed in a in singleness by establishing a theology of singleness. So taking a look at that, we've um, had three, this is our third examination of it, but the second one with a focus on the theology of singleness itself. So I'm going to, for the, as I said, for the sake of time, I'm going to um, stick pretty close to my notes. And for the sake of desiring to be accurate because of the nuances in, in handling this issue. And I don't want to say anything wrong because, man, some of our singles might get lethal on me if I mess this thing up. So I'm going to be careful as to how I do it. And I've, But I've, the biggest reason is I've tried to work this out as carefully as I can. Uh, I want to again mention to you what I said at the beginning last week. This is not a new subject for me. And in God's providence, I served the Lord as the pastor of a little uh, Bible church that uh, the Lord blessed to grow. And um, it was over half full of singles because uh, we were right in the middle of, um, I say singles, college and singles age. And it was because we were right in the middle of uh, a number of colleges there in uh, Chattanooga. So we had students coming from Bryan College and Lee College and uh, Temple, Tennessee Temple College and Covenant College, the vast majority, Covenant College and, um, and uh, University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. And so we were having a little singles retreat and they asked me to deal with this and I was given some information that I want to acknowledge has really shaped my understanding here from God's Word. This is all the way back to the 1970s. Uh, in which many of our singles of which I'm speaking to now uh, were not even in existence or even thought of at that moment. But God's word abides forever and God's word still true. And these and I've kind of reworked it a little bit. I want to thank again um, Pastor Al Martin, who mentored me back in the 70s uh, and and worked his way through this and sent me his material. And then I worked on it and I have continued to work on it throughout my life. And I I've, uh, again, brought it to bear in how to look at singleness from a theological examination. And that means from God's word. How do we see things as God has ordained them and established them? Well, the only way that we can examine it is through the scripture. And then when you come to a phenomena like like uh, singleness or marriage uh, or parenting, you have to come and take a look at it in the context of the flow of Scripture. And I want you to remember when you're looking at your Bible, there is this flow, creation, fall, redemption, and then consummation. So always remember those four statements as you theologically examine things. In other words, how did God in creation establish this phenomena? How did the fall affect it? And how does redemption restore it, redeem it, and reconcile us in the context of that particular category of life? And then the consummation, what will it be like in eternity? 
So last week, I took you through creation and fall. Can I give you the review on that? Here were three statements from creation uh, concerning a theology of singleness. Number one was, in the creation account, perpetual singleness is absent. In the This is the first point we made. As we looked at creation, perpetual singleness was absent in the creation account. Number two, in the creation account, temporary or preparatory singleness is present. In other words, Adam has a period of time, we don't know the length of that time, in which he is single and was alone. And to accomplish the creation mandate, he was, it said, he was not good for him to be alone in terms of his call in creation to the glory of God, to subdue the earth, to rule over the creation, and to be fruitful and multiply. But he was, for a time, single, and God used that in a preparatory, a temporary time of singleness, preparatory, um, in order uh, to bring to him a wife. Number three, given the above two statements that I just made, number three is it would be, uh, it would be therefore reasonable to assume. Now I don't, this is, I'm not making this a theological axiom. Listen to my language carefully, please. It would therefore be reasonable to assume that without the fall and the divine judgment upon sin at the fall, as well as the presence of sin in today's, uh, in today's existence, perpetual singleness would have continued to be absent. In other words, perpetual singleness only appears after the fall. There is a temporary singleness. Adam temporarily was single. Eve uh, was temporarily single. God made her from Adam's side, and then she is single until God then brings her to Adam, and then comes the marriage. So you have Adam and Eve temporarily single, but there is no hint of perpetual singleness. Now, uh, had God ordained a perpetual singleness? Certainly that could have been a, a fact. So therefore, I'm not saying that, but the only way we see perpetual singleness is as a result of the fall, the curse of sin, and sin's continued effects in society. And therefore, perpetual singleness becomes a reality to address uh, for the glory of God. So, um, uh, Temporary singleness would have continued as children were raised up and then were and then left their father and mother to cleave to a wife and uh, a wife would be given to a husband. But that temporary singleness would have been there, preparatory singleness uh, as children come through the process of maturity. But there would there there seems to be no reality of anticipated perpetual singleness apart from the reality of the fall. So let's. go to the fall. And I want to give you one statement after our study of where singleness comes from in the fall itself. And that is this. While it would be careless to declare axiomatically that without the fall and the consequences of sin, perpetual singleness would be absent, it can be said that the fall has clearly produced functional causes resulting in perpetual singleness, which has exacerbated the reality of perpetual singleness as a factor of life. So that is present as well. Now, I'm going to get this all on a note sheet for you. If you don't have it down, uh, it'll be present for you. I'll get that out for you. Oh, it's already there? Praise the Lord. Oh, good. Would you bring it up to me? Have you got a note sheet there? I did not know that. I am so much more efficient than I ever thought I was. Oh, my goodness. Well, good. It did get there. All right. So, uh, so here is your note sheet from which uh, you can work. Now, what, a, what I gave you 10 effects of the fall that contribute to perpetual singleness. We have violence and war and a, and an uneven impact between male and female. And in the area of war, we have, uh, 
We have the, um, the higher death rate statistically, not a higher death rate statistically, but a, a quicker, a, a, a mortality, um, a mortality table whereby men die before women do. And, uh, I used to know those figures. I, uh, as I've got, I think I've already hit the number anyway. Uh, but, uh, so I, there, I don't know what all the figures, here's what I do know though. One of the blessings of the second wave feminism is now women are dying quicker. So that gap is being shortened uh, because of uh, that's one of the results of the egalitarian movement, particularly second wave feminism. And so here is um, so here is, and we could go on and on about um, about personality, the effects of sin, about uh, un- unbiblical views of marriage, either in terms of idolatry or fear, the broken family and and because of the sin, the broken families because of sin and what it produces in the lives of those yet anticipated. So I gave you 10 of those that I don't have time to go back over, but I'll make sure they're published for you in case you don't have yours from last week. But now, what is God's solution? Well, that's redemption. Does God have a solution? Whenever sin has produced something in this world, then God has a solution that comes through the administration and the proclamation and the power of the gospel itself. So what I'd like to do is to give you in redemption, as you look at singleness, a theology of singleness not only looks at creation, not only looks at the perpetual singleness that is a result of the fall into sin, but now looks at the redemptive application of the gospel and how does that affect the way we deal with singleness in the body of Christ among ourselves and with one another in the Lord. So let me give you this three statements about it. All right, here's the first one. The benefits are the advantage. In other words, the benefits and um, there are benefits and, and advantages Two, uh, there are benefits and advantages to be embraced in singleness, perpetual singleness. There are benefits and advantages that God's redemption brings to us in the embrace of perpetual singleness as a Christian. In other words, as a Christian who is empowered by the gospel, finds themselves in the not temporary singleness, but what seems to become a status of singleness. Singleness, a, a perpetual singleness in life, there are actually advantages and benefits that God produces in the power of the gospel. Can I give you an example? Uh, an example. How many of us have seen the fact that God can not only take us from our sins, but he then, in the power of the gospel, transforms us so that we are forgiven in our sins. And when he redeems us from some of our besetting sins, those besetting sins actually become a groundwork from which he develops an effective life for Christ. How many people have been delivered from addictive behavior of the appetites, sex, um, sexual addict, addictive um, sins against the Lord, or, or drinking, or uh, alcohol, or uh, eating, or what there might be multiple uh, sins that drug us down into the depths of the consequences of sin. We came to Christ, we got redeemed, and He turned our greatest, our greatest failings, our greatest rebellion, into. Great instruments whereby, for instance, you begin to counsel other couples or you counsel someone to share with them. You comfort them with the comfort that comforted you. You're able to minister to them. There's many, that does not say sin is profitable. It does say that redemption is so powerful it can take even the, even the greatest sins of the greatest sinners and turn them around in terms of great statements of the power of the gospel in repentance and transformation, like a religious terrorist becoming the greatest church planter that's ever lived. His name was Paul. A guy that kills Christians becomes the greatest evangelist with the greatest heart for evangelism, the apostle Paul. So here are, there are, um, there are examples after examples of this. Well, the same thing's true if perpetual singleness is here because of the effects of sin. Now listen, do 
want to make clear, you you do not misquote me. I did not say one is single because of their sin. I did not say that. Our sins could contribute to our perpetual singleness. I mean, sometimes... We, we meet people that just in their sin are so dour, so negative, so cynical, so, um, so um, despairing in life. People would look at them and say, I just don't think I want to be tied to that for the rest of my life. So that is a reality. But I am not saying that any time you see someone uh, in an extended singleness, you automatically assume that it is in fact directly because of their personal sins. No, we don't give that. We don't give that judgment. That's not ours to give. But what can we perhaps say is that God sometimes takes that status and uses it in ways that we are astonished by. And so I tried to put down some of these benefits that the, that redemption brings when we embrace God's calling in our life in extended singleness. And the passage that I'd like to use is found in 1 Corinthians 7. Let me give you three areas of blessing in perpetual singleness that um, when our contentment is in the Lord can be embraced in our lives. These are benefits, advantages that can be employed. The Apostle Paul brings our content, our um, our attention to this in uh, chapter 7 and verse Verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, okay, I love the ESV. I'm deeply appreciative of the ESV, but I do find myself at points of disagreement in translation. And I, I personally approve because of the, of the weightiness of the language, the uh, NAS translation, now concerning virgins. What it is speaking of is someone who has not yet married. They may, they may be committed to marriage. They may have a uh, commitment to marriage that is yet to be celebrated and consummated, and thus they would be betrothed. But it may include people that aren't even betrothed. Virgins would be those that would be a term, anticip- that would be a term applied to anyone who is not yet married. Now, why would they, why would you say that? Because sex belongs only within marriage. It is the sexual, the marriage bed that initiates the marriage, that recreates the marriage, and that procreates in the marriage. So a single person is either single or betrothed, but not yet consummated in the marriage. And so that's looking at anyone outside of the consummated marriage covenant. Anyone outside of that, Paul is now speaking to them. That would be any and all singles. I have no command from the Lord. By the way, let me stop right there. You know, Pastor, I hear what you're saying is that a single person is um, is identified in terms of virginity because in the law of God, God calls us that sex belongs only in the context of marriage, and that's and that's how God ordained it from creation. But, Pastor, that's not true in my life. So where am I? I can't say I'm a virgin, but yet I'm not married. Well, this is where you must embrace the gospel. You must embrace the gospel at two points. Number one, you're forgiven. If you repent of your sins, you are forgiven. Secondly, whatever it was that brought you into that sinful relationship of a sexual relationship outside of marriage, God's power can give you the ability to now live differently. So I believe in the power of the gospel. you got a new life in Christ. Let's live. And I believe in the power. I believe in the uh, forgiveness of the gospel. We're forgiven. That we are forgiven and our sins have been removed from us. And now you've got a new life that you can live with devotion to God's word. So I would put you in that category as well, the forgiven and the redeemed. So here is now concerning uh, those outside of marriage. I have no command from the Lord. Now, let me explain to you what he means. He's not saying, okay, what I'm about to give is just some advice. No, no. What he's saying is God has not yet revealed what I am about to say. This isn't coming from God's revealed will. That doesn't mean it's not God's revealed will. 
This is Paul saying, I'm not, you know, like this morning, we quoted from King David in the Psalms when Paul was writing in Ephesians 4. What Paul is saying, what I'm about to give you is not something that's already been found in sacred writ. It's not already found in the scriptures. It's not already been declared by the prophets and the apostles. But now, as an apostle, this is a command from the Lord, even though it doesn't come from a command already given in the scriptures. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment. So here is my judgment. Here is the apostolic word, which means it's the word of God. And here is my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. In other words, I've been entrusted to give you this divine truth of how you ought to deal with your life. I think that in view of the present distress It is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Fulfill your covenantal vows. And and, uh, then he says, if, um, uh, if you're bound to a wife, do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. So let me stop there. Let me be very careful. I want to say this as carefully as I can. When people come to you and tell you, if you're serious about Jesus, don't get married, the Bible identifies that as a doctrine of demons, abstaining from marriage, because it's a higher plane of spirituality. No, if you're going to be married and you've been gifted as married, he said you haven't sinned. There's something about this moment The burgeoning persecution that's taking place. This present distress. He's giving pastoral counseling. Can I put it as plainly as I can? It's easier to die for Jesus if I know I'm not leaving a wife and children behind. It's easier for for me to take a trip, a missions trip, like the Apostle Paul, if I'm not leaving behind my wife with whom I made a vow to do what? Dwell with. To dwell with. So what he's saying, in light of this burgeoning movement of the gospel, in light of the rising persecution, this present distress, I'm giving you some advice, some pastoral advice. If you're not yet married, then don't seek a wife. If you seek a wife, you haven't sinned. If the wife, if a woman seeks a husband, she hasn't sinned. I'm giving you some advice. Now he's going to be very specific why he gives that advice in this moment. He says to them, he, he says, um, are you free from what do not seek a wife? Then verse 28, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. Again, I prefer the translation worldly cares. They will have worldly cares. So I'm in this present situation, and if I get married, by covenant vows, I've got cares and concerns that I have to address in decisions of life. If I'm not married, I don't have to address those concerns. So in light of this special situation whereby we find ourselves, consider the call to singleness for this present distress. And what is the rationale? The rationale is that you would not have to deal with the worldly troubles or the worldly cares, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had not none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who, and those, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they have no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. In other words, this is what he is saying. He is saying all of the things that God has established are good. You haven't sinned if you're married. You haven't sinned if you have married and you take on someone as a husband and wife. But consider in this present distress, in this present situation, consider the advantages of continued singleness. 
Now, he's going to be very clear. If you don't have the gift to be single, then you don't embrace it by deliberate deliberation. You may have to deal with it in contentment, but you don't take it by vows. Celibacy is a gift, not a vow. Celibacy is a gift to embrace, not a vow declaring superior spirituality. So here is the call that he has made to them to give consideration to this. Because when you're living for Christ, now let me give you an example. For I don't know how many years, because I had a wife and I had children, I had, I cannot tell you how many invitations to engage in short-term mission trips as a pastor around the world. But I made a commitment that except for once a year, I would never make a commitment to a missions trip that extended beyond three days except once a year where I would go for two weeks. But only once a year would I do that. Now, there were multiple reasons. Number one, I'm supposed to dwell with my wife. Number two, I need my wife's presence for my own pursuit of holiness and for my desire to help her pursue holiness. Number three, and number three, I have children that I have to parent, and I've got to make those decisions. Well, now my kids are up and gone. <laughs> I, those, kind of, those kind of decisions have now been set aside, but I still have my wife, and I still have our relationship. Now, my children are up and gone, praise the Lord, and uh, praise the Lord. Again, up, gone, praise the Lord. I love it when they come back. I also love it when they go home. It's great. Praise the Lord. It's a wonderful experience that we now have. So, um, but what I want to, want you to see is when you've got covenantal vows for parenting, for a wife, etc., that, that affects every decision you make in ministry. But when those, those cares of this world, remember, in the consummation, we are not marrying or giving in marriage. But now in this present age and in this present distress, if I can embrace perpetual singleness, it offers up advantages. And those advantages is you are not as encumbered by the worldly cares that are upon you, that are before you. And so, but in the meantime, you fulfill your responsibilities while you live unrooted in this world. Let me say that again. You fulfill your calling to minister unrooted in the world, yet intentionally fulfilling your priorities and vows. In other words, I don't live for this present age. Although I have covenantal vows to fulfill in this present age. But I don't fulfill them as if this is the final fulfillment in my life. Now that's a challenging thing to understand. But that's what he's telling us. You do not abandon your covenant vows as a, as a, a spouse or as a parent. Or as a member of a local church. You do not abandon those. You do not abandon the responsibility that if any man provides not for his own, he is worse than an infidel. You gotta to go to work. You're supposed to produce and protect and, and help your children, help your family and your wife. You're supposed to, as a wife, create a home for your family and to be that one who creates a home even as a, as a homemaker and a husband wife. And you have all of those responsibilities. Yet, that's not your point of worship. That's not your point of ultimate devotion. You are ready to lose your life for Christ's sake no matter what. So I am not rooted in the idolatry of my responsibilities in this present age. I am unrooted from that, even though I am, I am responsible before God to fulfill those. And then, if I find myself in a position of perpetual singleness, then I can embrace this moment for the advantages it gives. I can go on more short-term mission trips. I can go over to somebody's house and read with them. 
I can take on five people to disciple instead of two. I've got that, I've got that, I've got that surplus of time. And now I can steward it for the kingdom. Not just get lost in the entertainment world or not just fritter it away without thinking. But now I've got some hours that I wouldn't have had if I wasn't in this position of singleness at the moment. And that's what he is telling us to do. Here are the advantages. These are, these are spiritual advantages for your growth in the Lord. Here's what he says. Not only have you had this opportunity for these spiritual advantages, again, it's not saying marriage is to be, not, it's not saying abstain from marriage because it's a greater spirituality. What he's saying is when you're unmarried, you have a certain, you have certain access to time and talents and treasure that you can redirect for spiritual reasons when, and uh, when if you're married, you've got to redirect them in faithfulness to the Lord. You've got to direct them to your covenant vows in your marriage and in your parenting so then he says and so um and 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 that as you live your joy and sorrow is not dictated by this present age your joy and your sorrows are related to your relationship with the lord and extending the kingdom through your family if you're married and then um and then into the lives of others whereby certain responsibilities that you would have to fulfill in marriage you have now more opportunities to be engaged in evangelism Evangelism and discipleship, missions, etc. Now look at verse 32. I want you to be, he kind of gets to the, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And by the way, he ought to be. He ought to be. I want my wife to be fed. I want my wife to be clothed. I want my wife to be cared for. He ought to be. But if by, in God's providence, I find myself in a position of singleness, now I've got all of that that would normally bring my concern and my attention. I can now redirect it spiritually to my growth in grace and my, and my work in the ministry of the gospel. So the unmarried man is, um, I'm sorry, verse 33, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And, and by the way, Paul is right on target. <laughs> Happy wife, happy life. Yes, amen. Praise the Lord. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried, now that doesn't mean it's unspiritual. It just means that you are now focused within the marriage. If you don't find yourself in that position, don't lose that, don't lose that um, unclaimed uh, intellectual, emotional, spiritual energy that you have that you would have directed into the marriage. If you're in an unmarried state now, you've got freedom to direct it in other areas. Take advantage of that moment. And his interests are divided. And if the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be, um, and how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any present restraint upon you. I'm not telling you don't get married. I am telling you take advantage of the moment if you're unmarried. That's what I'm telling you to do. And that you have some, you have an open door to take advantage of these things. And I want to promote good order and secure your undivided attention to the Lord. Well, there are other things to say here, but I, I want to give you two examples. Take your Bibles and go with me to Luke chapter two. Let me go to, let me show you two examples in your Bible of how this is seen uh, in reality. Luke chapter two. You remember the birth of Jesus. You remember them bringing Jesus to fulfill the law at the temple coming up from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. You remember when they met at the temple, there was a man named Simon. You also know that they met someone else. Go to Luke uh, chapter 2 and take a look at verse uh, 36. When they got to the temple, there was a prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years since she was a virgin. There's that virgin as singleness term. And 
then she got married and she was married for seven years and then as a widow until she was 84. So she got married, lived with her husband seven years. Clearly he died. When he died, she then lived as a widow all the way to age 84. What did she do? She didn't engage in self-pity. She seized the moment for the advantages it would offer spiritually. So what did she do? She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to, to all who were awaiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She took that time that she would have rightly devoted to her husband when she was married. Now that she finds herself in a perpetual state of singleness, what does she do? She seizes and redeems the moment for advantageous spiritual growth and spiritual ministry. She does evangelism. She does diaconal ministry. She is servant-hearted ministry. She does um, ministry in word and in deed. She is, she's teaching. She is doing all of the things appropriately within biblical paradigms and precepts and she is engaging so there's an example and these well pastor that's just old testament and jesus just born all right let's go to first timothy five go with me to first timothy five here's another case of perpetual singleness redeemed to an advantage redeemed to an advantage look at verse three uh, honor widows who are truly widows. Then he goes on to say how to honor them. Now slip down to verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled. In other words, there was a list of women who were widows. Let the widow be enrolled if she is not, if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. And if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows. That is, don't put them on the list for support. Why? Well, first of all, they would have family to support them. And then secondly, that, and the family should step up to do what they're supposed to do. For when the, but don't enroll them. Why? For when their passions, but refuse to enroll young widows, for when they, their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation. There must have been vows taken to be on this list of widows. And then she would break the vow because she's younger and might be drawn back into a marriage and would break that vow. And then they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. And then he said, besides that, they learned to be idlers, going around from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows to marry, bear children, manage their household, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So it, it seems as if the early church had this list of those now by widowhood in perpetual singleness, and they were given the honor of support to engage in ministry, very similar to what Anna would have done. And while younger widows may end up in that position and may choose to take advantage of their perpetual singleness, they are not to take vows of celibacy, vows of refusing to marry. They are not to do that. They are to, they can serve and take advantage of the moment, but they should also be ready to marry and be engaged in the life of their family. So here is one of the ways for spiritual growth and spiritual ministry and availability to do ministry, perpetual singleness can be seized in the moment by those who find themselves in that position. But there's a second blessing. A second blessing is not only spiritual blessing in the and perpetual singleness and redeeming that uh, that status, but secondly, cultural. So you've not only got spiritual depth that can be pursued in perpetual singleness, you've got cultural width. I mean, how much are we now, how much would we then be, um, I mean, I don't, I mean, if a night comes, I remember years ago when a night came and I had an open night, um, 
I couldn't go do something uplifting like go to a baseball game, you know, cultural advancement. A baseball game, cultural advancement. That's cultural. That's, that's elevating. I couldn't do that. I mean, hey, if I gotta tell you, I need to spend some time with the kids. I mean, all the demands that have come in the ministry, I need to spend some time there. But when in perpetual singleness, your development and wisdom in terms of cultural engagement and making these relationships, you've now got greater freedom to do that. Number three, you've got ministerial breadth. You now have time to be a steward of your talents, your treasure, your time. You've got all of that that you can steward in ways that you wouldn't be able to steward if you were married. That doesn't mean that if you're not gifted to remain single, that you, that you, um, that you abandon the desires to be married, but it does mean don't die in a pile of self-pity. Seize the moment for Christ. Seize the moment as a moment of ministerial breadth, of cultural, uh, of cultural depth, of spiritual growth that seize this moment in order to accomplish those things and, um, and then invest yourself in that status of life that you have now. And then the fourth thing that I would say about the benefits spiritually to, uh, to you is you now have the opportunity to manifest to the world the sufficiency of Christ. That you can manifest to the world the sufficiency of Christ. Christ is enough. I, even if I don't have the gift of celibacy, Christ is enough. Would you go to one more passage of scripture with me? Would you go back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9? 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Oh my goodness. 1 Corinthians 9. Go with me there rapidly. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. We do not have the right, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it not only Barnabas, uh, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard with Without eating of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? And then he goes on to speak of how the Word of God has guided him. Here's what he's saying Here is the glorious flip side of Christian liberty. People talk about, well, I'm free to eat this, I'm free to drink this, I'm free to. Paul is flipping the coin for you. And he said, I've got a right to eat and drink, but I give that up for the sake of Jewish evangelism. I mean, I could go in and order some eggs and bacon, but I don't for the sake of Jewish evangelism. So I don't offend them and I get an opportunity to talk to them. I've got a right to have a believing wife. But for this present distress, I have chosen not to. I've got a right. I've got a right to be supported in the ministry, but I have decided to work. Barnabas and I decided to work and support ourselves for various reasons. I've got these rights, but I have the liberty to give them up. And so while I am in a situation because of the power of the gospel and the need of the gospel, I can seize this moment not as God's providential infringement on my rights to be married, but as God's granting of an opportunity to embrace a stewardship that I hadn't sought, but that he is enough and I can live it for him and for his glory. I can live out this stewardship for him. I have the power to turn that which I don't have or that which I have a right to have. And what I have a right to have, I can give up. And what I don't have, I can turn over to the Lord and live a life free from the bitterness that comes without the liberating power and presence of the Lord. Well, I gotta give these to you very quickly. Here's the second thing, that there are disadvantages to perpetual singleness which need to be redemptively avoided. There are redemptive, uh, there are disadvantages, liabilities 
to be avoided redemptively in perpetual singleness. Would you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Look with me in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, let each man, uh, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should not give to his wife uh, the husband should give to his excuse me the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her to her husband for the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again and he is speaking of intimacy so that satan may not tempt you because of your lack of control now as a concession, not a command. Here's what I say to you. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from the Lord, one of a kind and one of another. Now, guys, I've got to thread this needle. You've got to stay with me on this. If I've got the gift of celibacy, then I don't have to seek marriage. Because one of the basic blessings of marriage is it is the place for one to engage shamelessly in sexual relationships in the honor of a marriage bed. But if I don't have the gift of celibacy, I can still embrace the moment of singleness and take advantage of it to grow in the Lord spiritually, culturally, and ministerially. But I need to be on guard lest I am tempted. Don't sensually touch a woman. I prefer the NAS translation on this. Now He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sex. I think that's an interpretation. The translation is don't touch a woman. It deals with sensual touching of a woman. Don't do that. Same thing with women, with men. Is that you don't engage in that. Sensual, sensual touching and sexual intimacy and all of those romantic forms belong within the marriage covenant. And if you don't have the gift of celibacy, even though you embrace God's providence in this moment of your singleness, you've always got to be on guard because of that God-given appetite for intimacy. If you have the gift of celibacy, that means you don't have that appetite. I will confess to you, I've been in the ministry for I don't know how long. I have had many people, I've had a number of, let me say, a number of people come and tell me they have the gift of celibacy. I've only seen two in my life that I actually believe they had the gift. Only two is all I've seen. Now, you just take that as as a comment. Uh, but that, but so you need to make sure. Here's another thing. Where, here's another. How? What's one of the means of grace? Fellowship. Isn't it right? What is the closest fellowship you ought to have in this world? In your marriage. In your marriage. And if I don't have that person, fellowship's a means of grace. <laughs> I like the way one guy, you remember? I mean, sandpaper, marriage is a little bit like sandpaper. We keep rubbing the edges off, don't we? And the closer you are, the more the edges show up and the more the rubs are made. And then we get to see somebody and I said, man, I just want to be like Cindy. I wish I could do like that. How do you do that soft answer turns away wrath thing all the time? I mean, I can pull it off every once in a while, but all the time. How do you do that? So here is these glorious moments of growth within marriage that the person doesn't have in the most intimate relationship of fellowship. This is why I wish this church was filled tonight so that every married person would understand the need to get engaged with those in perpetual singleness at this moment to give them as much fellowship as possible. As much as possible. I think we ought to think through it in our shepherding ministries, our congregational communities. How can we get it done? You can't replicate the marriage, but you can, and, but you can get beyond 
high in the lobby, shake hands, see each other, and we can find a way to get fellowship to another level in terms of relationships in the body of Christ for those who don't have the means of grace blessing of a marriage where the means of grace of fellowship in a marriage is assisting them. Does that make sense? I prayed and prayed that I could get that thing sensibly to you. Now, that's not your problem. It's my problem uh, how to do that uh, for you. So, uh, secondly, uh, so sexual, uh, and let me make another point. He is not saying if you get married, that's going to solve all your sexual sin problems. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying you are in the environment whereby we can engage in shameless, sacred sexuality. And we also are in an environment of intimate, deep fellowship in a marriage. And here are those in perpetual singleness who don't have the gift of celibacy. But they're not in the marriage to celebrate it. And they don't have the closeness of a husband and a wife to see what they shouldn't do and to see what they want to do as a means of grace. That's why it's so important for us to be engaged with one another, married and single, older and younger, in order, now all with propriety. All with propriety. I'm not talking about men, married men taking it upon themselves to have fellowship with unmarried women at, at the level that, uh, that would be inappropriate. I'm not saying that. But we can be spiritual fathers and we can be brothers and sisters in the Lord that, um, that are engaged with our brothers and sisters who don't have that God-given avenue of marriage for intimacy and marriage for fellowship. Well, I'm out of time. I, I'm not going to. Somehow, we'll come back to it. I tried. I want you all to know I tried with all my heart uh, to do this. And um, so we're going to get back to this. And I'm going to. So after Easter, nobody can get married until after Easter. All right? Because I'm not finished yet. And we'll come back to this when we get back. I, I had it planned. It just didn't work out. So we'll come back to it. Part three is on the way in a theology of singleness. Okay, I'll be up here to answer questions uh, as usual tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we could be together in your word. Thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, the way that he redeems us, the way he works in our lives, and the way we can fellowship together. Uh, Lord, um, I know I didn't get there, but if I could just go ahead in my prayer, bring this to you. My brothers and sisters that are in perpetual singleness, I pray you would help them. Don't fall prey to the idolatry of marriage, and yet don't try to deny the dynamics of life in terms of how we're made to function relationally and uh, in a way that honors you. Yet, with contentment in Christ, embrace the stewardship of the moment. And then may we as pastors and elders and deacons and as communities, may we surround one another to get the benefits of those in this status of life of continued singleness at the moments and as the moments pass. And then we get the benefits from them and we begin to benefit them. Please help us do this so that people may see your family is different. Christ Church. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.